Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. My name is Lee Davis, the Chief Executive of SEPA, and through this series of podcasts, I am going to invite SEPA members and some of our key partners to share their stories with me. I am joined in this great adventure by my co-host, SEPA Council Member and Honorary Secretary, Gwilym Roberts. We are the two IPs in a pod. Hi, Gwilym. Have you reached the end of your tether yet, or are you still okay? Um, I'm really enjoying being in phase two, and the only difference between phase two and phase one is the number. Um, it seems exactly the same, and yet apparently <laughs> everything's changed. So it is, um, yeah, it is getting a little bit samey, I have to say. Um, but I did have a meeting this morning with a colleague uh, in the park. Um, we live nearby, and we thought, let's meet and have breakfast in the meeting. And so it's first, pretty much the first time I've had a real physical meeting with anybody for ever such a long time, which is very nice. Did you carry a two-metre stick so that you could measure how far you were away from one another? I live in south-east London, so you always have to carry a two-metre stick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, this is, um, this is quite an exciting one we've got today because um, you won't know this because you just sort of play around with the edges of association leadership in, uh, in CEPA's council, but um, I do it as my day job. And the first week in June is Associations Week. And today we've got with us two colleagues of mine from the world of association leadership. Uh, one is the chief exec of the in- Intensive Care Society, which is the membership body for medical, nursing and other healthcare professionals who are working with the most vulnerable people in hospitals. Um, we thought it was hard work keeping the CEPA show on the road, but what a tough gig that must have been for um, <laughs> intensive care oh, professionals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our other guest is the driving force behind Memcom, which is a professional network for association leaders like me. Uh, and also the premier annual conference and awards evening for us folk who work in membership. And the membership conference should have been happening next week to coincide with Associations Week. And instead, we're looking forward to a week-long online shindig. So I'm hoping we can learn something about making a conference virtual to carry that forward into CEPA Congress. But um, you know what? For just one particular reason, I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves. Here we go. Hello, my name is Julian, and this is my friend Sandy. (laughs) <laughs> well, I thought it was funny. <laughs> we might have to explain that to almost anybody, uh, Lee, unless they happen to be into obscure 1950s radio comedy, in which case they will be rolling on the floor. Yeah, but th- th- think about all of the downloads of uh, Round the Horn that there's going to be after this. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. yeah so we've done it a favour. Yeah, so I've got with me Julian Smith. Julian, uh, heads up, Memcom. And we also with us have with us Dr. Sandy Mather and Sandy heads up the Intensive Care Society. So welcome both. It is an absolute um, pleasure to have you both with us. And this isn't this isn't to denigrate your work, Julian, but given the really important stuff that Sandy and her members have been doing, we are so pleased, so pleased to have Sandy with us. And um, absolutely, it's a yeah, it's an a- absolute pleasure. So um, and perhaps we perhaps we could kick off with you, Sandy, if that's okay. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you do at ICS. Um, where you've been spending lockdown, what life's been like for you, and also how, how you and your members are holding up in the current circumstances. Yeah, thanks very much. It's a real pleasure to be on this podcast. I've, I've listened to a couple of them and um, they're really good. So thank you very much. It's a privilege. Um, so um, I've been spending lockdown in my flat in central London, um, just five minutes walk from Euston Station. So not a lot of greenery around. Um, but um, it, it's been nice. At least I've got an outside balcony, so I'll get some fresh air. And um, plenty of um, Zoom meetings, the same as everyone else as well. Um, um, what does the Intensive Care Society and what we've been doing? 
Um, well, the Intensive Care Society is twofold. We're both a charity and a membership organisation. So um, traditionally, we've been um, primarily focusing on membership side, looking after um, intensive care consultants, trainee um, consultants, um, physiotherapists, nurses, and everyone within the intensive care team. And um, more recently, uh, we've always had as part of our char charitable object that were there to advance and promote the care and safety of critically ill patients. And in the last six months, we've really pivoted and moved towards amplifying what we do for critically ill patients as well. Um, shall I talk a little bit later about what we've been doing during the current crisis, or would you like me to say a little bit more now, Lee? Lee's on mute, but I think he's saying go for it. Lee, <laughs> how long have you been podcasting for? <laughs> Okay, it's a team effort. It's I, a team I, effort. I, I, I so rarely put myself on mute. Thanks for making me look at well, wow. making me look like that, Gwilym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us now, Sandy, and, and now you can appreciate that this podcast can go anywhere. Okay, so <laughs> okay, okay. So, um, as a charity, we're there to um, look after patients and, and, and advance their care when they're in intensive care, but also to provide educational support, standard support, and to fund research as well into intensive care and outcomes. And, and if I think about where we've been in the last um, few months, and particularly during this COVID-19 crisis, I, I kind of have it as the past, the present, and where we're going at the moment towards a, the post-COVID world, and it'll never be the same for anyone, I'm sure, um, particularly our patients, particularly our, our members. Um, you know, in the past, intensive care was emotionally and physically challenging. Um, it, it, it would um, be, you know, our, our, our members would sadly have to say to at least two families out of 10 every week, um, I'm sorry that, you know, your, your loved ones aren't going to, to be able to survive intensive care, and so we'll die. And so that, that was two out of 10. And during COVID-19, that's increased. And it, it's now one in two, so 50%. And um, that's, that's got an emotional drain. And um, we know as well that before COVID, that about 30% of our membership were vulnerable to burnout syndrome um, because of the intensity of the emotions and um, the, the, the intellectual um, scientific challenges of, of being at the very edge of life and supporting family and friends through very traumatic situations and having difficult conversations. So that was in the past. If we go to the present, um, you know, if, if we thought it was emotionally and physically um, challenging before um, in, in the, you know, the best of worlds, in, COVID-19 is the worst of worlds, and it is absolutely exhausting. So we're dealing with the same issues, but there are so many different facets that, that our members are challenged with. One of them is um, actually COVID-19 is very different to anything they've dealt with before. And so as we were going through it, we, we back in the first week in March, we set up a WhatsApp group for the COVID-19 intensive care leads across the UK. Within 12 hours, there were 257 on the group, so it was full. That was the maximum we could get on the group. And that goes 24 hours a day. And it, it, it was, you know, hundreds of WhatsApp messages going during the first month, particularly when we hit the peak in April. 
And still now, as different parts of the country are experiencing still high levels of, of COVID-19, still it goes all the time. And, and there are cycles of questions that go through there and people respond very quickly. Our president and our council members are on there and they respond. The national advice that we're developing and the guidance we're producing, we post on there as well as posting on our website and through our newsletters. So it, it, intellectually, our, our members are used to be able to um, a known disease and how to support it. And with COVID-19, it, it wasn't going as expected. Things were different and there were vastly more patients needing their help. So instead of working in an intensive care unit where perhaps, you know, there may be 10 beds, you know, a very small unit with 10 beds, they were all doubled up. So there'd be 20 beds, you know, in a unit of 50 beds, there would be 100 beds. And so um, if we just take the small unit case of, you know, a small unit of 10 beds, where two patients might die, that doubled to 20 beds, where instead of four patients, it's 10 patients. So they are having to have those conversations instead of twice a week, maybe two or three times a day. And instead of just one uh, group of professionals having that conversation, so mainly it was the doctors that would have it, they've had to share that out because it's just emotionally too much to be able to take. And also time-wise, physically, you can't do that as well as look after the patients. So we would typically have nurses looking after one patient each. So to be an intensive care nurse, you have to do either postgraduate training after your initial qualification, or you have to have significant experience. And um, the ratio is one person, one patient has one nurse looking after them all the time on 12-hour shifts. And they're looking after the ventilators, they're looking after the machines that look after your kidneys, they're looking after all the different cannulas and tubes going into your arms and your neck to measure pressures and to also take samples and also to, to give different solutions and treatments. And, and that moved in the current COVID-19 world. That's moved to instead of one nurse doing that per patient, it's one nurse for six. And so that they are stressed beyond belief about how can I deliver the same quality of care when I just, I just can't be there. They've got other people helping them. So we've had dental nurses, we've had orthopedic surgeons, other people coming in to help but they haven't had the years of training and the years of experience. And so it, it's very, very difficult to accept that. So intellectually, it's very difficult because you haven't got the answers. You're perpetually dealing with something that you don't know is, and why is it not responding the way it would normally respond? And why isn't this patient who would normally be on intensive care on a ventilator for five days on a ventilator for six weeks? That's very, very different. The patients are coming out and they, you lose typically 2% body mass. Uh, a muscle mass every day you're on a ventilator on intensive care so patients are coming out very very weak they have huge rehabilitation needs and so planning that in and, and making sure that we have got that support within the NHS to support patients longer term is challenging because our members are thinking about that all the time well how am I going to help them in the rehab in the rehab stages um, the other thing as well is that physically so I've talked about the emotional I've talked about the intellectual and physically, you're wearing personal protective equipment, which you're not normally wearing. And so um, that makes you hot. It hurts. They all get marks on the face. They get blisters on the nose and the cheeks because it has to be quite tight to make sure that aerosol generating particles don't get into any mucous membranes. So that's tiring and it, and it hurts. Also, you can't see your, your colleagues. So when you're working in a close-knit team in a very critical situation when you're perhaps putting a tube down someone's throat, to help them to breathe. Normally, you've got the, the checks of looking at people's eyes, the body language. You know who somebody is on the periphery of your vision, 
because you know what they look like and you work with them all the time. In PPE, that's gone. So you can't quite see who you're working with. So that teamwork is really very, very difficult whilst you're in the PPE. You can't go to the toilet very frequently. You can't drink easily very frequently. Uh, obviously, you can't eat. So there's a whole range of physical, emotional, intellectual challenges. So in the future, and, and what we're doing now as a society, as a membership organization to support them, we pivoted uh, on the 5th of um, March, I think it was, we completely pivoted. Everything is focused on COVID-19, how we can support our members and our non-members. Part of being a charity is that you have beneficiaries. And so our members pay for the charity, but the beneficiaries are everyone that works within intensive care and all patients and, and their families. And so our, our resources were quite slim. And so we started some major fundraising campaigns, which we were going to do this year anyway, because it's our 50th anniversary. The charity and the, the organization has been around for 50 years. And so we started some fundraising campaigns. And, and the major one that we're focusing on in the last month has been well-being and resilience through education. We have clinical psychologists working with us to develop this support mechanism for the intensive care professional team. And if I tell you that um, there are uh, one unit in five, we have about 300 intensive care units in the UK, and about one in five have access to a clinical psychologist. And that clinical psychologist workload is focused on pat patients, first of all, then the families and relatives. And then after that, if there is enough time in, in what they're paid to do, they can then look at the staff and look after the staff. And so the staff come down the line and there are only one uh, clinical psychologist in five units. And so part of our fundraising campaign is to generate sufficient funds that we can support those units that don't have clinical psychologists and that we can fill the gaps where they're not funded at the moment. And so we've been doing a huge amount of fundraising to be able to help our members. There are, we've got a wide range of different fundraising campaigns and I'm so grateful to every single volunteer that's come forward to help us. We had a Just Giving page and we have about 50 people that have set up their own Just Giving campaign for us related to that Just Giving campaign. And um, I'm going to, I'll close off now. Sorry, Lee, I can see I've gone off on a whole tangent. <laughs> no, 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 not, not at all, Sandy. What, what I was going to say, what I was going to say was now would be a cracking opportunity to reach out to benevolent patent attorneys who are listening to this and tell them where they might be able to come and make a donation. Oh, thank you. That's so much. Yeah. If there are any benevolent patent attorneys out there who wish to donate, please have a look at our website, www.ics.ac.uk. If in doubt, email Lee and he'll email me and I can send you the details. But thank you very much. I must also say as well um, that SEPA already have helped us and, and Lee's team have helped us with our webinars. So when I come on to the things that we've been doing for our members as well, we turned on, on a pin and stopped our um, events and went on to do webinars. We'd never done those before and we were dithering about it. It was too much. We didn't have the money. How could we do it? We didn't have the skill sets. Um, with COVID-19, we just have to do it. We have to get some information out there, some knowledge share. That, that, those intellectual challenges that our, our, our members are having about not knowing what's going on clinically, we wanted to have knowledge sharing sessions via webinar, both closed and open. And we also did an international one as well with um, the US and a few other countries in Europe and China to share learning about what these other countries were doing with COVID-19 and how patients on ventilators were, were recovering, how the renal function, the kidney function was, 
and what fluid load was like, what um, thrombosis, what clots um, patients were experiencing. And, and so we could share all of that learning. And so the webinar element was new to us and, and I'm very grateful to Sipa and Lee for volunteering some of his staff to help. I know, it was, it was, our a, junior it staff. was absolutely our pleasure, Sandy. It was, <laughs> um, you know, I, um, we, we know quite a bit about running webinars at CEPA. We've been doing them for a long time. And um, to be able to lend that experience to um, you and your folk was, um, was just an absolute pleasure. Thank it's you. And, and it was phenomenal. It made such a difference. Sorry. I was going to say, it's, been, it's interesting for me, actually, to see how the membership organisations, how you guys link up far more than I'd realise. Um, it's nice. It's, I'm delighted that CEPA had the opportunity to do that. But there must be lots of opportunities for this kind of connection. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I, I think without the peer support that we have across the chief execs within membership organisations, I'd have felt <clears throat> very isolated. And I know the Institute of Association Leadership has been running weekly webinars for us as well. And um, that's been a, an opportunity for a private chief executive forum to share thoughts, experiences, lessons learned about how to support staff, how to work in, in this lockdown environment, etc., and it, for me, it, I mean, people have seen me going up and going down yeah, through yeah. those doors because at the beginning we were in just such a financially I, I, difficult, challenging position. I, I remember, I remember the early days of those conversations, and I felt so guilty because <laughs> I'd be sat out the garden with a beer, um, ready to listen to all of the woes that all of us who are running membership associations have got. And then Sandy starts speaking about what she's doing for our, her members, and all of a sudden it doesn't really matter what the rest of us are faced with. <laughs> you know, it's, it's how how can we help you? Whilst we're, whilst we're talking about the networking side of things, maybe I'll let um, Julian slide in if that's okay. Because um, Julian, CEPA is going to have to take its three major conferences online in the autumn. And it would be great if you could um, ha- help us learn how to do that. Because I know, I mean, Memcom, you know, that I uh, adore Memcom as a conference and um, habitually turn up to it every year. It's not happening this year. It's happening online instead. So um, do you want to talk us through how you've managed to take this massive conference online? Absolutely. But if I if I can uh, start by saying, of course, I mean, I, I'm one tiny cog of Memcom and uh, you, 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 you kindly introduced me as the driving force behind Memcom. Actually, there are six of us in the team uh, and my business partner, Debbie Hawken, would uh, have my guts for garters if uh, she thought I was going to take the credit. Yeah, but, um, she's not, but she's not here, is she? She's so. not here, but, but she and her t- and, and the team, I mean, they've been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, we, we again, the same sort of time that you did stand in terms that you said it's 5th of March we had exactly the same sort of pivotal point for us we we either had to accept that Memcom wasn't going to happen um and you know if we we had no Memcom we had no business um or we thought well actually should we be trying to do something online so we had to turn it around overnight um and it has been an incredible challenge for an organization that we small small team and we're certainly not cash rich um, and it's of course a resource for the sector so we have had to pretty much reinvent everything I I call it reinventing the bicycle not just the wheel because actually it feels that we have had to go out there and look at every single aspect of of the the physical memcom work out which bits first first and foremost are still relevant um, and which bit you know and, and how to put something on that's a real resource for the sector so, I mean, huge challenges, um, as I say. I mean, I, you're asking for tips, Lee, because actually the, the survey that we recently did, uh, which, again, I think both CEPA and ICS contributed to as well, demonstrated this is that we had about 120 chief execs that came back to us for that survey. 
Uh, and within two weeks, about 80% of professional bodies and associations were demonstrating that they were affected by a loss of income from learning, networking, uh, conference events, etc. Um, it's one of the biggest worries for all professional bodies and trades associations out there is you get greater demand at a, so at a time like this, heightened demand from all of your members because they need more support. At the same time, there's less and less money coming in and fewer and fewer opportunities to make that money. So you then suddenly, you know, you're faced with the same sort of situation that Sandy had, tiny team, so limited resources, increase, massive increase in demand. Um, and what I love about the sector generally is exactly what you guys were describing just then is how everybody seems to pull together. Um, and I think Memcom, I can safely say this because actually we didn't create Memcom, um, but we, we sort of took it on, uh, took over the mantle of it four years ago. But Memcom has been doing that for the last 21 years. Um, and it's brought everybody together in a way that I think if it didn't exist, <laughs> to, to coin a phrase, I would want to create it. Um, come back to the challenges. Um, I think the first thing you need to do is question the relevance about what you're trying to do, because the world has moved on so much in such a short space of time that actually one of the first things that we had to do is work out whether or not people even wanted the same sort of sessions, the same sort of topics, because actually some of them seem really frivolous now. When I, when I look back at the sorts of things we were looking at, we were saying sort of, you know, looking beyond your 2020 vision was the uh, the, the, the key theme for Memcom. Now, obviously, you know, I, we can't even see that far ahead at the moment. We're, you know, in, in terms of uh, the world of events, in terms of education, uh, professional development, um, assessments etc nobody can see three months in advance you could, um, you could always you could, you could always get in your car just to test your um vision well, <laughs> i understand your 2020 vision exactly I, well i i i i'm not one for breaking rules uh, okay. the, yeah. so um, I, i'd rather not comment on that um the uh, uh, when you've questioned the, the relevance i guess you then have to think carefully about the sort of media that you're going to use um and and it's really interesting because people think that Taking an event and slapping slapping it online basically is then it suddenly becomes an online event, and it's not as simple as that. Um, you've got to sort of think about the format. You've got to think about the the content. You've got to think about the speakers. You've got to think about the tech. You've got to think about absolutely everything. But also the way people learn is very different. Um, there's a real sort of engagement with a physical event that you just don't get in the same way, obviously, with uh, an online event. Um, and I know that you're doing a session for us next Thursday, Lee. Uh, that's on I am. June. Um, and it's basically looking at the future of education and assessment and, and, uh, and sort of you know professional development. Uh, one of your co-speakers, uh, Dr. Hannah Gore, is actually uh, an expert, an open university expert on all things learning and digital. Uh, and she uh, basically sort of talks about the, the sticking plaster approach which is literally just grabbing everything and sticking, you know, sticking it online and think you've done with it and that's really the first phase of of an organization's digital learning development so that's the first thing to be care, uh, to, to think about so hopefully we'll all get some some tips from from hannah next thursday the third thing i'd say is can or should you monetize an event Ooh, now the cool. temptation tell, 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 us more, tell us more about that that sounds uh, fascinating well you see, the temptation, I think, at this time is when you're facing uh, a, a lack of income um, uh, because, you, you know, you've lost your income from certain resources. And again, you know, 
Memcom is our one big, the, the day of Memcom is the one big money-making event in theory. It certainly pays for itself and, and adds a little bit to the coffers for the rest of the year. However, we took the decision that actually the sector needs Memcom more than we should be thinking that we need the income derived from it. Um, so we took the decision to open it into a completely free event um, that is on from the Monday through to the Friday. Um, and the reason for that is there's so much out there at the moment that's for free, um, but it's quite difficult to get your voice heard if you're then, you know, sort of trying to publicize something that's, that, that you're charging money for when everybody else is offering something for free. We've got such phenomenal speakers that we thought, well, actually, we need to make sure that this is a free resource. We need to make sure that anybody who needs to find out about the future of events or the future of education or um, how not to lose sight of the environment, for example, which is Friday's theme, uh, well-being, which is Monday's theme, um, how to get your voice out there, which is Wednesday's big themes. Um, all of those things are really crucial, almost as a toolkit, I think, to professional bodies, trade associations, membership organisations. Um, so therefore, we took the decision not to have it on, uh, not to have it as a paid event this year. The second benefit of that is, of course, that we will win new friends. So, so people will listen to this. People who perhaps hadn't found Memcom as accessible when we when we priced for it. People who whose organisation said no, we can't afford to send you to Memcom. Actually, now they'll have a chance to to, to listen to this as well. So we get a, a sort of a, a larger following, hopefully, as a result. And that means with the larger following, we have more people to, to, to pick from in terms of supporters, sponsors, um, partners, speakers, our committees, um, the awards, more people enter the awards, and so on. And it just means that it, it really helps the sector. The final thing I would say, actually, as a tip is people are more forgiving right now than they will be in the future because the tech is relatively new. Um, you know, we're all suddenly Zoom experts already, um, but imagine what people's expectations are going to be in terms of slickness for, a, for an online event in, in another 12 months time. So I'd say if you're worrying about doing it, absolutely go for it. Do it now. Much better to do something now and, and, and do it in good faith and people will accept it as such than actually put it off for another 12 months and then find that you've, you know, you've lost the edge or you know, the, your, your competitors have stolen the march on you. People are also desperate for change at the moment, aren't they? Anything new, anything a bit different. So, and Lee, I think you know, you talk about the SEPA events, but just trying something a bit adventurous that could go horribly wrong. As you say, now is the moment to do that. Ask me next Friday. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right, Gwilym. We, we've, for example, because well-being and um, well-being is the theme for Monday. It also happens to be the theme that we've posed for Associations Week this year as well, um, because association and sandy um, sandy's made it absolutely clear that that you know in terms of the challenge that her members have got actually whilst it's not to the same extent i'd say there are there are, you know there's obviously clearly other challenges in other uh, professional medical bodies um they're also feeling the pinch my sister-in-law for example is a physiotherapist she's one of those people who's been cocked to the icu unit mm -hmm. um the only thing i'd say as well that that um that you know, Sandy, Sandy gave paints an excellent picture. Actually, the other thing I'd add to that is the fear, because it's the fear of getting COVID. It's the fear passing of passing it to of your dying. family. Passing it to your family, exactly. The, 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 you know, that extra sort of terror. And, and I know my, my sister-in-law sort of struggles with that. She's got a young son. They, they tried for a while um, to have a son and to have a two-year-old son that she has to, um, 
you know, go home to at the end of each night uh, after working in a, an intensive care unit, for example, is a, an extra stress. Um, so it, it, that, that knock on stress, that knock on impact is throughout all professional bodies. Um, trade associations, people who, who are losing their businesses that they've been working for for the last few years. Uh, for example, um, British Footwear uh, Association. I mean, they were talking about the, the stress on, on, on all of their small little manufacturers. Um, it affects every single business and every single professional in ways that we just can't possibly imagine. Um, so yes, everybody is looking for something new, uh, some, something new, something exciting um, as part of the wellbeing session. Um, we are putting on things like mindfulness sessions, personal training sessions, um, personal coaching stuff, um, just in a bit to sort of try and give people something more, a, a better experience than perhaps they would have at a, at a physical memcom. So um, would, would you suggest that's something that, uh, so we're, we're thinking about our CEPA Congress towards the end of September. Um, would you suggest that's something that we might want to think about including? So not just focusing on the, the techie stuff that patent attorneys love to get down and dirty with the detail, but uh, to put on some well-being stuff for them? I say, why not? I say, if it, you know, if, if you try it and if it doesn't work, then at least you've tried it. Um, we've already had quite a few people sign up to the personal training sessions. Um, I haven't. Awful. You haven't yet. No, no, I noticed. I, I've, I've signed you up, Lee. Don't worry. And, and you, Sandy. Uh, but the, uh, the, I actually did a run through, just a really quick aside. Um, we did a 20 minute run through with the trainer because he was recommended to us. He's a, um, sort of a, a young guy who's been uh, a personal trainer for the last uh, two years, involved in the, the, the fitness industry for nine. And so we just wanted to do a run through with him on the tech because, you know, make sure he was good, make sure he was confident with everything. And uh, there are a few of us in the team doing this. Now, we're all reasonably fit. Um, you know where this is going. Um, and he, uh, he says, you know, okay, so this is, you know, we'll do a 20 minute session. We'll do 10 minutes of legs and 10 minutes of upper body. And he kept talking about the whole thing saying, okay, so we're just going to do like, you know, 10 reps of this, but in the real session, we're going to double this or, you know, I can throw in a, a, an extra three exercises. By the end of it, honestly, I mean, 20 minutes, we, we had to give him the feedback that that 20 minutes was plenty for, for <laughs> your average Joe in the association world. It was so intense. But it's, yeah, uh, you, you, uh, it's you haven't encouraged really me to sign up. No, I realise that. But yeah, I, I must admit that... that's a clear warning, isn't it? That one. <laughs> <laughs> you got I... to remind him that we've all got, you know, the Zoom bum. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you've got to pity me because I, I signed up to do all four of these personal training sessions just to give them some support as well. Um, so I'm, I, if if I'm even here next Friday, it'll be a miracle. We did a we did a guitar lesson at work, the Zoom guitar lesson that I was uh, volunteered to run. That seemed like a great idea, until four of the five people who turned up for it turned out to be better at guitar than I was. So um, I did very well out of it. It was a great guitar lesson for me. Um, but yeah, people enjoy the idea, and they they definitely these these new concepts. So give it a go. I love that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take this back to the committee and see if it looks after us and suggest that we ought to weave into CEPA Congress something well, the, a little other, bit different. The, the challenge that you might find for the board um, is that perhaps you, I, I know you've got an excellent board, Lee, uh, full, of, full of lots of talented individuals with, with, their, own, uh, with their own ideas and skills. Um, so you might even ask them to volunteer for certain sessions uh, and lead people through different things. And speaking about having an excellent board, of course, we've got in our midst today an excellent um, patent attorney, IP specialist. And I think you might have a question, Julian, haven't you? 
I do actually. Um, it, it, it's, it's something. It's, it's in in the early days of, of setting up our company, we were bombarded with emails, and I suspect anybody who's ever set up a business is, uh, or has a has a, an email address in a public domain gets exactly the same. Uh, emails mainly from 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 China, turned out, and telling us that somebody else had registered our company name or, or website, and asking us if we own the IP to get in touch. And I know they were phishing. Um, and but it's one of those things that it, it's struck me thinking. I don't know that much about IP. I don't know in terms of national borders or international borders. Where does IP start and finish? Um, so as we discussed in the run up to this, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to put my IP advice in front of the entire patent profession. It scares the living daylights out of me. But we obviously we can have a chat about the, the specific details. But you raise a really interesting question about international borders and IP. IP is rooted uh, in the, the 20th century and even before. It's always been a deeply national right because it's a monopoly and people are very keen to look after their own monopolies. Um, and until maybe 15 years ago, that kind of worked okay because to get a product from somewhere to somewhere else, you had to ship it through a border and to buy a product, you had to go there. And so it didn't really matter uh, that there were these borders in place because they mapped exactly onto the commercial world. Now, a huge issue that IP is struggling with is the fact that borders are disappearing. And again, an another fascinating um uh, uh, outcome of what's going on at the moment uh, is that we're discovering that um, the, the world is kind of borderless and we are all in communication around the world. We're obviously trading around the world in, in, in new ways. And the IP system starts to look a little bit out of sync. But unfortunately, um, it is no more out of sync than the fundamental concept of national identity. Um, so I think we're a long, long way from, from any real solution. There's plenty of good judicial solutions to dealing with the fact that you can trade over, over the internet and buy something from China. Um, is that an infringing act and where is it? All that kind of legally stuff. Um, but the reality is you have to get quite expensive lawyers in to, to police it at any high level. And it's, it's a real indication of the fact that as geography starts to become less and less relevant and the IP system is going to have to have a good think about how this all fits together. Unfortunately, the obvious answer would be um, um, uh, harmonization globally. Um, at the moment, that isn't, made, that isn't the big trend um, <laughs> across the board. Uh, and there are ups and downsides to that as well. So I've completely weaseled out of any actual answer to your question. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I think it is, it's a topic that's, that's a really important one. And your question's good because I think when you're sitting inside the system, you've been doing it for 20 or 30 years, you don't tend to ask questions like that. And it's, it's good to be reminded that to the outside world, it, it can look a bit weird sometimes. It can look a bit weird answer. on the inside sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're, we're kind of creaking towards the end of the pod. So I always like to end these with a little bit of reflection and try and kind of make them a little bit upbeat. Um, so, and I'm dreading asking Gwilym because we've been through this a number of times. So I don't know where he's going to go with his answer. But let, So let me start with Sandy and with Julian first. Um, you've probably learned a lot about yourselves during um, lockdown. Is there anything that you're going to carry with you into the new world personally or within the organizations you work whatever that might look like what are your th what are your thoughts on the new world should i go first Jim? yeah yeah go for it so um one of the things that that i've learned is about the goodness of people and to be honest i've always believed the best in people i come from that angle anyway but the amount of um people that were strangers who i will now carry with me as friends as a result of the journey we've been on during this time and the volunteer work that they've done 
to help the intensive care society is phenomenal. Um, I think the other thing that I've personally learned that I'll take with me is I, I've, I've learned what my voice is as chief exec of the intensive care society. Well, that's really powerful, isn't it? Julian, how about you, sir? I wish I'd gone first now. How do I follow that? Um, <laughs> thanks, Andy. <laughs> One less friend. Um, I, I, there's a couple of things I would say um, on a personal level, and I'm hoping it kind of resonates with a lot of people. I think I'm more conscious of resources now. I'm, I'm taking this as the um, taking this as the sort of the you know the trauma before the stroke or the heart attack. As a, the wake-up call to think of me personally in terms of my carbon footprint, what can I do differently? Um, I don't need as many clothes. I certainly don't need to buy new things. You, you um, might need a razor. I might well need a razor, but again, you know, I'm, I'm liking the fact that I don't have to make so much of an effort. Thank you, Lee, <laughs> it's, for it's a good pointing look. out. I look it's like a good look for those. Thank you. Yeah, I have. That's another thing on a personal level. I've noticed that some people absolutely detest beards, and some people kind of like them. So, um, <laughs> Uh, on, a, on, a, on a professional level, again, I'd echo what Sandy's saying. It's a community. It's a network. Um, I have never seen so much love for Memcom, actually, as, as, as we're feeling now, because people have come out of the woodwork to support us. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, it just shows that at a time of great need, people do come together. Yep. Well, I'm dreading this. Go on then, Gwilym. What you got for me this week? <laughs> well, for, for Julian and Sandy's benefit, um, I do give us, I have given some serious answers. And I actually will give a quick serious answer. I, I did demand a silly one too. So the, the serious one is actually, I, I've noticed that um, I understand leadership better than I've ever understood it before. And not from a personal perspective, because I'm not, but, um, but from watching people like yourself, Lee, if I may, I think you've shown magnificent leadership. It's been wonderful to watch. I've heard wonderful stories from 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 my guests today, um, which again show, and it just goes to show sometimes that leadership is partly about the job title, but it's also partly about the attitude and what you do. And the number of people who have leadership roles, but also who don't, who've proved their leaders at the moment has been unbelievable. So that, it takes a crisis, I guess, I guess to sometimes bring that out in people. Um, that's been amazing to watch, actually. Um, so that's my sense of one. Uh, <laughs> silly one. Uh, we haven't talked about, yes, Fran, tortoise fact. We're being reminded by a producer that we haven't talked about tortoises yet. Uh, so I'm going to. <laughs> two minds as one. Uh, Lee, after all the tales of tortoises um, and, and the future podcast, I'll tell you about the tortoise I once had. But um, I'm going to ask you, uh, in addition to you telling us what you, you're picking up and we're going to add to your list, um, should I get a tortoise? What a, what a difficult, just one, only ever get one, I think would be my, would be my answer to that. Because um, one of the two, if you went for a pair, would die of exhaustion. Um, and, and my understanding is it doesn't matter whether they're um, a mixed pair or in a single sex relationship. The, um, the brutality is exactly the same when it comes to the ritual, I understand. So, um, but yeah, otherwise they're amazing pets, apart from the fact that, um, so one of the things that I've learned um, just this last week is that my tortoise actually likes to come indoors more so than we thought he did. And it's probably because it's been so nice and the weather's been great. We've been opening up the back of the house, so the French doors are open, the kitchen doors open. When I get up at about six in the morning, I'll then meander into the study and do a little bit of work and go out of the kitchen and tread in something particularly disgusting because he's decided to come in and um, and just um, relieve himself in the kitchen because it seems to be more convenient than the garden. So I've, I've had to build a sort of tortoise-proof barrier across the patio to try and restrict him to the, to the end of the garden. So 
Yeah, th- thanks for bringing Albert Treacle back into the conversation. My serious one, though, I've learned something today, and I'll, th- I'll thank um, I'll thank Julian for that, and I'll thank Sandy for her contribution in a bit. But the bit I think thank Julian for is just reminding me that it's okay to take a risk, and that at the moment, when it when it comes to trying new things, people's expectations might be a little bit lower in terms of what they're prepared to live with when things go slightly wrong. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to be emboldened now, and I'll go to SEPA Congress Steering Committee and see if we can't try and do some new and new and innovative things for our members when we when we take congress online so that's my that's my serious one um i'm going to wrap us up there because i think we're there or thereabouts but um before i do that i'm going to ask both sandy and julian to do a little bit of shameless promotion so um so sandy an opportunity for you to remind us of the the link to the ics website and also how we can perhaps help you, help your members, and therefore help your members help us. Thank you very much, uh, and thanks for inviting me onto the podcast today. So the Intensive Care Society is fundraising for wellbeing and resilience through education for our membership, and the way to donate is to go to our website, www.ics.ac.uk. And we're grateful for every single contribution for the price of a cup of coffee to however much you want to donate. Every single penny counts and makes a difference to us. Thank you. Thanks, Sandy. And Julian, I'm conscious that um, the, the podcast will be out at the start of Memcom week now and Associations week. And I'm, I'm sure that some of SEPA's volunteers who involve themselves in committee and council and like Gwilym in our governance might benefit from coming to such an event. So do you want to give Memcom a shameless plug? I wouldn't say shameless plug, but I'll give it a, a little little nudge. Actually, specifically, I think for, for anybody who um, is involved in uh, voluntary positions within the, uh, the charity sector with professional bodies, trade associations, or membership organisations in particular, actually Thursday's content is possibly ideal because that's the reimagination of a business there's also going to be a really interesting session there on how to develop high-performing boards, um, which could be, I think, could be really valuable to, to, to the sector going forward as well. Uh, I think if we're going to get out of this, we're going to get out of this together by having smarter, better organised organisations. Obviously, FIFA is perfect, um, but others aren't quite in the same position. And uh, Memcom address is www.memcom.org.uk. Oh, and it's all completely free. I'll, um, I will nudge my council members towards Thursday, actually, because I think some of them would get um, something out of the, the events that I know are on Thursday. Well, Julian, Sandy, thank you for spending a wee bit of time with us on the pod. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. And Gwilym, catch up with you next, on the next one. Looking forward to it. Thanks thank for you. Uh, thank bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.